Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. I'm your host, Dan Seed from the University's School of Journalism and Mass Communication. We're joined for this episode by Hector Saldana, the Texas music curator for the Whitliff Collections here at Texas State. Prior to his work here, Hector spent 20 years on staff at the San Antonio Express News as an entertainment writer and music columnist and continues that work today. Hector, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. It's uh, wonderful to be uh, with you guys. So let's start here. A long career for you in and around music, right? First with the Express News, now at the Whitliff Collections as the Texas Music Curator. What drew you to music from the get-go? Well, going back to my earliest days, uh, my brother and I had a, a, a band going back to when we were teenagers. So rock and roll got me into it. My dad made the mistake of buying me a guitar when I was seven in 1964 after watching the Beatles and uh, it kind of went from there but just loved music as a fan and as a musician and then started writing for the Express News as a freelancer in the mid-90s. They said we don't want any more music writers at the time you know they had a Tejano music writer they had a country music columnist and they had a music columnist and they go we don't need any writers you know if you guys if you want to do anything you can cover the comedy beat so for for my whole tenure at the Express News I wrote about comedy as well, you know, uh, during really one of the comedy booms, that second boom that happened throughout the 90s. And But then, as you would know, there's so much music uh, that the overflow, I started handling that. And because I it was an am a musician, I was, I was maybe bringing a little something to the game that was a little different, you know, maybe from the musical structure side of things, maybe as I saw it that way. And just another voice, you know, like in a, in a podcast, you, it's a kind of an exchange of ideas. And so I think I brought that. So, so what happened is from the mid nineties, I was covering everything that Jim Beal, who was the music columnist, didn't want to cover. He loved Cajun and still loves Cajun, Zydeco, the blues, he's encyclopedic, but I tended to cover the uh, alt rock, you know, all the alternative stuff that was happening, pop, some of the hip hop that was going on. And so uh, I had quite a full plate myself. And then some people would get mad at, you know, different people would leave the paper, come back. So I would sometimes cover their columns. So the Latin music columnist at the time was always you know, either uh, on someone's bad side or something. So I would cover the column for a little while and he'd get back in the good graces and I'd go back to the pop stuff. So covering that diversity in music, like you're talking about, that kind of experience, is it difficult as a writer or even as a person, I would imagine that it's hard to kind of bounce between genres and be able to speak to those, right? From an expert kind of point of view, how'd you go about doing that? Was it just immersing yourself in the music? And do you attribute that to your love of music that you just threw yourself into all these genres and, and got to know them? Well, you listen you know, to a lot of music, right? I, I always say everybody's a music expert. If you have two ears and you like music, you know, you're kind of an expert on, on what you like. What I learned and what I would, I would always tell any young journalist or music journalist, being there is like 99.9999% of the job, just going to those shows. I mean, I lived in nightclubs and bars and at concerts and, you know, saw literally everybody. I mean, Nirvana was the only act I didn't see from that era. Everybody else and interviewed a lot of folks, but mostly just kind of going to those gigs and seeing what was happening, even in genres 
that I either wasn't too familiar with, or maybe I was, you know, as a, as a, as a journalist, you're kind of an instant expert. A lot of the times, you know, you're given an assignment or you're, you're trying to balance assignments. So you have to come up to speed pretty quickly. And so, you know, going to those shows, seeing what the audience is, trying to tap into what that connection is with the artist and that audience helps a lot. I hope that makes sense, but that really was a lot of the formula for me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Being a former reporter myself, I know that you have to put yourself up to speed, right? You've got to be interested in everything or, or find a way to learn about stuff, which helps with your own education, of course, as you go through it. And covering music as long as you did with the Express News, clearly this area here is known for music, right? Austin, the live music capital of the world. And this is kind of one of those hotbed places for musicians. But what stands out to you during your time there in terms of, I, I suppose, maybe how the music scene evolved or how it's changed? Yeah, well, one of the things that happened in San Antonio is that you had a big, you know, I, I wrote for the San Antonio Express News. I would cover like South by Southwest, you know, so I'd cover some events in Austin, big shows I would cover in Austin, big shows at, at Green Hall or at Whitewater. But for San Antonio, what changed a lot is the uh, the place called the St. Mary's Strip changed. You know, you had the influx of a lot of fresh faces and uh, he had Austin promoters getting involved with booking the nightclubs and it kind of changed that mix of music. Even though, contrary to popular belief, San Antonio, when you really break it down any given year on a calendar, they really had a diverse music scene. I mean, as far as concerts coming in, I mean, remarkably so, though it kind of would get, you know, described as the heavy metal capital or, mm -hmm. you know, the Tejano capital, really a lot of fresh acts would find themselves in San Antonio. But San Antonio really changed on the ground. And especially as with this, I would say in the last decade, 15 years with the emergence of uh, sort of foodie culture and just sort of I don't mean it in a derogatory term, but hipster kind of culture sure. that sort of, I call it youthful, just the changing of the guard. You really did get a fresher take on music there. And, it, and it's palpable, you know, whether it's in the Pearl or down in Southtown or on the St. Mary Strip, those are areas in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And then beyond, you know, there's this music scene on the far north side and it's interesting. So with this background, and again, with you as a writer and being exposed to all this kind of music, different genres, the changes in the scene, I think it's pretty natural, the fact that you're in the position that you're in as the Texas music curator at the Whitless Collections. I mean, you have to have that kind of sense of history and that sense of place and that sense of, of what makes music special in our area and across the state. So in 2017, you joined the Whitliff Collections, and we here at the university are quite familiar with what it is. But for our larger audience out there that isn't familiar, what is the Whitliff Collections? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the Whitliff Collections is the research center and archive at Texas State University. It's a repository for more than 500 collections, photographic, film, literature, and music. I mean, we're world famous for the literature collection. You know, the Whitliff was originally known as the Southwestern Writers Collection. That's how Bill and Sally started it. Right. Which means in our collection, you know, you have such writers as Sam Shepard or Sandra Cisneros, John Graves, 
uh, John Reshi, uh, Cormac McCarthy. I mean, the, you know, the list goes on and on. It, it really is amazing. The same goes for uh, photography. We have a lot of Mexican photography, just all kinds of photographs, you know, that curator Carla Ellard looks at. And they also had a, a good music collection. Bill Whitliff had, had had that. So I really came in as the first music curator, I guess, just to kind of give it a little bit more weight, I mean, or, you know, kind of emphasis, like, let's go, you know, let's go with this pillar. And also in keeping with, you know, one of the enticements to come to the Whitliff collections, which was a beautiful opportunity for me, you know, after a long career as a journalist, it was sort of a graceful and upward and prestigious right. exit from the newspaper. You know, in other words, I wasn't going to work for another uh, media company or a competitor, you know, it was sort of a, a nice, friendly, and, and it would have stayed friendly anyway, but that's how I kind of saw it. But I think Bill wanted to put emphasis on that music collection. And really for me, it was kind of the same thing because, you know, a lot of, whether it's music journalism or preserving Texas music history or the arts here at the Whitliff, you know, overseeing the music collection, it really is about getting that story right. A lot of times the way I've sometimes have explained it, it's not about reinventing the idea of what Texas music is, but it's really more accurately depicting what that is. So for me, what that means is bringing in collections that represent, you know, all the great women musicians that are, you know, that have come from Texas in the Southwest to, to bring in the blues and R&B artists that have been part of that tradition, you know, to, to sort of really try to bring that spectrum or that emphasis to it, which, you know, is part of the mission, but it's a little different when you are in the middle of it because it's so easy, especially when you talk to people outside of Texas or even in Texas, you know, a lot of times when they think of Texas music, they think Willie Nelson. Well, right. we love Willie. I mean, who doesn't love right. We love Willie. But, you know, part of my job is to tell the story beyond Willie Nelson. And there's a lot to tell, which is which makes my job really fun. So I want to get into what the collection entails, you know, the, the stuff that you guys have, some of the highlights of it. But I think where you're bringing this here with the story of Texas and how the music plays in, how has music shaped the story of the state of Texas? A part of the story of Texas, I mean, you know, it, it's people argue it's the birthplace of Boogie Woogie and the blues in many, many ways. You know, our proximity to uh, New Orleans, you know, that jazz influence in the East Texas sound was amazing. You have an incredible history of Black blues artists that shaped that sound. You have the country music and the swing music of Bob Wills, which went far beyond the borders of Texas. And then you have the Mexican music and the German music, all in this region. You know, that's the beauty of Texas State University. We are really smack dab in the heart of Music Row, I think of it, because of where the dance halls are and where the German music and that Mexican and Mexican-American influence really came together. In a nutshell, there's just all these different flavors that are part of Texas, which sometimes makes it hard to explain that sure. music. Sometimes it keeps some of the sounds regional. You know, Tejano was very regional and still is in a certain way, but, you know, with certain artists like Selena, she broke out, you know, with artists like Doug Somm, who is still kind of a cult figure, but with the Texas Tornadoes and the Sir Douglas Quintet kind of showed that blend of rock and roll country and the Mexican thing, the, you know, the Tex-Mex 
swagger. And then you have artists like Flaco Jimenez, you know, six-time Grammy winner, uh, you know, lifetime Grammy winner. And then just right now to kind of let's shift it to the Whitlow, what's going on right now, but you know, with our Ray Benson exhibit, who, you know, Ray Benson, the exhibit's called Ray Benson 50 years, and you have, you know, in Ray Benson, you know, a Texas icon who is probably the keeper of the flame more than anybody for that Texas swing and Bob Wills tradition. So it's kind of a melting pot. It's, it's a cliche, but you know, when you dig into Texas, it really is. Yeah, it seems like it, it mirrors the history of the state, right? People coming from out of state, different groups within the state. I think that you hit the nail on the head there with this idea of the melting pot, the different genres, different styles, all kind of coming together to speak to that overall story and helping people break away from the stereotype, right? That, as you said, it's not just country music. It's not just cowboy boots. There, there's much more to it. So when you look at the diversity of the collection that you have, what exactly does the collection entail? What are some of the highlights in terms of the archival material that, that you have there at the Whitliff Collections and the importance of that? Well, some of the music highlights are a significant Willie Nelson archive, especially handwritten lyrics, both published and unpublished, which offer great opportunity for presentation, but also for future projects. You know, I'm thinking in terms of what they've done with Woody Guthrie with lyrics that never had music to them. I mean, I can imagine some young people or musicians in the future or as part of the Whitliff Collection's plans to add some music to that. I think that would be amazing. You know, in other words, where you bring history to life. That's that's the beauty of a place like the Whitliff Collection. Another highlight is the Ramon Hernandez Tejano Music Collection, which only just now got processed. It was acquired in 2017. We brought on a special archivist just to work on that. It took more than a year and a half to process its hundreds of boxes and costumes of material that really offer a lot of insight into a lot of famous musicians, lesser known people. But for those students of Tejano or Mexican-American music, it's one of the premier collections in the country, if not the premier, because Ramon Hernandez was a, is, he's still alive. He's a photojournalist, a journalist, and the ultimate fan. And he worked as a publicist for some of the biggest stars. So over decades, he acquired material. So we now have those at the Whitliff collections. Another highlight collection that I consider sort of the gold standard. I mean, you know, when you're dealing with old materials or that can be, you know, for your listeners, that could be letters, it can be documents, it can be posters, photographs, costumes, you know, stinky boots, all kinds of stuff that artifacts or ephemera that tell the story. And sometimes it's a fine line between stuff that your mom just wants you to get the hell out of the garage. (laughs) You know, all that material is processed. A finding guide is created by a very talented group of archivists here at Whitliff. You know, they actually are the, have the most intimate knowledge of that material, especially when it first comes in. You know, like it's, and it's quite a, you know, for my part, it's quite a responsibility. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing because, you know, when you're looking at things like James McMurtry's lyrics, you know, and his work process, and especially in those early days when he would write out a song, then he would make an edit and he would paste the legal paper right on top of it. So, you know, you can flip through these taped pieces of paper and see the progression of a song. And what that means is not only learning more about James McMurtry, but maybe 
maybe giving a little bit of inspiration to that young you know, man or woman who wants to be a songwriter is maybe too hard on themselves or they can see, hey, even the greats struggle with it or even write not that great of stuff, you know, among their classic works. So that's part of the fun of the Whitliff, you know, that's part of the, uh, some of the gems, but uh, I kind of got off track. To me, the, the gold standard is the Jerry Jeff Walker archive. How this icon of Texas music, you know, one of the, I always think of him as part of the big bang of Texas music of, and especially that outlaw country scene that ha- came out of Austin in the early 70s, how he held on to the materials that so many people, you know, that so often it can go by the wayside, you know, over time, over decades. Jerry Jeff Walker was the epitome of wild and woolly, yet it can make the hair on your back of your neck stand up when you look at the letter that he wrote to his grandmother thanking her for the 50 bucks she sent him when he was kind of just a hitchhiking musician and him telling her, hey, I think I wrote a good song. It's called Bojangles. You know, it's like, <laughs> right, well, right. so it just tells you that, you know, life has a lot of ups and downs. These artists, it's not a straightforward path for a lot of them. And so that's what we try to show or offer the researcher, the public, the documentary filmmaker, that opportunity here at the Whitliff Collections, just like a lot of institutions do. I mean, the Whitliff isn't just the only place, but we are part of that. You know, that's our mission. And clearly you still get wowed when you see this stuff. It's clear, right? That like, I'm thinking of you as a seven-year-old, 1964, watching the Beatles, right on Ed Sullivan. And I'm talking to you now, and I still get that sense of wonderment from you when you, when you go through this. It must be amazing to touch this stuff and to read it, the stuff that is music history. Well, yes. And, it, and sometimes it can come in the most unusual places. It can come at a, I don't know if, you know, behind me, I keep a photograph of, uh, there's Ray Benson on his uh, uh, Harley David, 1969 Harley Davidson in Austin in the mid 70s. He's in front of the Armadillo World Headquarters. Mm-hmm. Well, I was looking at that photograph and I just happened to ask his son, who's also his manager, I said, hey, did Ray hang on to that helmet? You know, it's a pretty cool kind of helmet, kind of old school kind of motorcycle. He goes, hell, we got the motorcycle. You guys want it? I said, yes, we do. So we got that uh, motorcycle in the exhibit at the Whitliff, you know, in the new music gallery, which is amazing. So that's kind of a fun aspect of it. On the other, on my other shoulder, I keep a, a photograph or a poster of a photo that I took of a 1934 image of Lydia Mendoza. So Lydia Mendoza is the great 20th century Mexican-American singer, probably the greatest uh, Mexican-American singer of the 20th century. I mean, her beginning in 1934 with that song, Mal Hombre, you know, she set a sort of tone and a standard for songwriters and uh, singers, you know, and she's Mm -hmm. quite a revered figure. There's a direct line from Selena to her, you know, and to a lot of artists back to her. She was sort of like a blues artist and that she only performed with a 12 string guitar and out in the fields and often just for people around uh, work camps and stuff. I was doing some research when I was working for the Express News and going through microfilm and microfilm, just trying to find the first mention of her. Couldn't find it in English newspapers. So I went through Spanish language papers, the Mexican uh, American paper, La Prensa which was a paper that existed in San Antonio. And there were different La Prenzas around the country, but La Prenza in San Antonio was dealing with demographic that was increasingly, you know, becoming middle-class, having their own social events. And Lydia Mendoza was not high society. I mean, she was not 
your traditionally glamorous singer. But I went through and found the a first tiny little advertisement for that record, Malombre. So I thought, okay, I'm on the right track. Keep going, keep going. So I found about the size of maybe three postage stamps, a little advertisement for Pajaro Azul, which is Bluebird Records. You know, Bluebird was the the print label for blues and folk back a long, long, long time ago when in the earliest days of recording. And so I took a picture of the screen. When we were setting up a new area with a where there's a bust of Lydia Mendoza that was specially made for the Whitliff collections that Bill Whitliff before his death just was so excited about. So we were looking for maybe a photograph to put by her. Well, there's a lot of stock photos of Lydia Mendoza, but part of, you know, part of the thing here at the Whitliff was to try to find, well, who is that photographer? You know, I, right, we could yeah. have used some, I mean, there's nothing wrong with using like maybe a, a photograph that you don't know who took it, but I would like to know where it came from. And so I asked our graphics designer, could they do anything with that image of that advertisement? Because I was thinking what would be kind of cool that if you think of it this way, that's the first graphic art representation of this singer who was a sensation as a teenager, you know, and I was trying to imagine back then she didn't play at big concerts. You would have heard her over the radio or maybe on that, on that recording. And you might've imagined, well, what does Lydia Mendoza sound like? I mean, look like, you know, you could see right, what yeah, she yeah. sounded like. You may have, you know, it's not like today where you have a photo on your cell phone instantaneously. So Lida Goose here at the Whitliff Collections was able to take this kind of not too good photograph that I took, transform it in, into really, it's, it looks exactly like the ad, but just blown up. Mm -hmm. And we have that next to the bust, which I think is kind of cool because both are sort of not, you know, they're sort of depictions of the person, right? They're not photographs of, I mean, a, sure, a sure. sculpture is not, and you know, it's, it's sort of the artist's rendition of her. The graphic art was sort of the graphic, it's sort of, almost an idealized version of this teenager you know if you look closely there's almost that virgin of guadalupe rays coming right, out right, from right, her right. from her head but you know had i been alive in the 1930s that might have piqued my curiosity and so i may not be making much sense but that's part of the that's fun right. of trying to bring that history which people might think ah, oh, it's boring or that's a long long time ago and they're right it is a long long time ago but it has relevance today that's Part of what I try to do, it's what I try to do as a writer, get that story right. I mean, I mentioned Jim Beal earlier. We used to have a competition, you know, because there's a lot of myths in Texas too, right? There's a lot of BS. So we used to try to track down how close can you get to the true story and have these little competitions. So I, I feel like we get a little closer to that understanding when we can present stuff that hasn't been revised a lot from that time and to try to show a little bit of relevance, especially to a young audience. You know, there's a lot of students that wander through and, you know, we notice sometimes, we, I try to keep an eye on like what affects them, what do they light on. The inspiration for that poster was they would often stop and stare at this beautiful photograph of uh, Selena. And you have to kind of wonder, well, what are they getting at? You know, even Selena has been gone 25 years. If you're right. 21 years old or 18, you know, what does she mean to you? So I try to understand that. A little bit. I think the way that you described it is really, you hit the nail on the head, right? In the discussion about Lydia Mendoza, you're bringing her to life in a sense, but it's also going back to that time where you didn't know where 
what people look like, right? So you, it kind of makes you feel like that. Like you don't, I don't know, something about not having like that photo just speaks to that time and gives you that representation of what people at the time felt or, or were thinking when they're listening to her on the radio. And, you know, when you mentioned people coming in and our students and whatnot, and they come up to the seventh floor of Alkek Libraries, you mentioned all this archival stuff. I'm just imagining Indiana Jones, right? And in, in the, at the end of the movie, the boxes and just treasures. But when people walk in, what are they going to see? So what, what's out? What's the exhibit now? And I know that you guys recently expanded. So let's talk about that a little bit and, and give us a sense of what, what we could expect to see if we walk in. Well, when you first walk into the Whitliff, especially for, for students that you know, are often up here on the seventh floor, they'll notice that we have a new entrance that also expanded the space. We added three new galleries, the uh, Edward S. Curtis photo gallery, the Treasures Gallery, the new Texas Music Gallery. We found a, a greatly expanded area for the uh, Lonesome Dove permanent exhibit. We have a new space that's still being sort of finished out for the new Whitliff store. So when you walk in, you, one thing you'll notice and you can't help but notice if you look even slightly to your left, you'll notice now that we have multimedia in that music gallery. So the Whitliff now, it's almost a football field of exhibition space. Wow. I mean, that, that's a lot. Yeah. That is a lot. And when you are in the, in the Lonesome Dove area, you can see all the way across to the Edward Curtis gallery, and you can really get a sense of that span. And so... Some of it looks the same because, you know, we had a, a massive photo gallery and we have the writer's room and some of the areas are the same. But immediately you get a sense of, wow, there's something new. And then you'll see we have two video walls. And so right now currently playing as a documentary. So you see that there's some life way, way down there. And then if you turn a little bit more to your left, you'll see a sculpture of this black crow. That crow is a sculpture donated by Terry Allen, the great Texas songwriter and sculptor, who, that's his tribute to the late singer-songwriter Guy Clark, and he incorporated Guy Clark's ashes in that piece. Oh, no. Wow. Not only are Guy Clark's ashes in the bronze, but the vast majority of the ashes are in a cavity in the breast of the bird, so it quite literally is the final resting place of one of the most revered songwriters there ever was, whether it's Texas or anywhere, right there. And so, and it was born out of a request that Guy Clark made. You know, Guy Clark was working on a, on a final song called uh, Caw Caw Blues, C-A-W, C-A-W Blues, based on these crows of West Texas. He'd seen, he, he himself was kind of a fan of offbeat stuff and apparently had seen this old offbeat museum exhibit of a crow's nest, uh, like literally a crow's nest mm -hmm. built of barbed wire and metal pieces that apparently in West Texas, these birds will grab anything, including pieces of metal. So he wanted something like that for himself and Terry Allen being one of his best friends obliged. It is very impressive. It's a little macabre in a certain way, right? There's a little uh, Hitchcockian. I would say so, yeah, yeah. But, but there's also a sense of reverence and it kind of embodies that we're here among these things, but we're treating these materials with a lot of reverence. You know, whether we're just preserving them or storing them or archiving them or presenting them in the museum, 
you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to describe that because it is, I'm the first Texas music curator for the widow, right? But in a sense, I'm only the first, I mean, I'm only a, a temporary steward, right? I mean, I'm a steward until that next music curator will be, you know, it's, it's kind of, will be carrying on that preservation effort. And so you do sort of have that without selling, sounding too Pollyanna-ish, it is sort of a, a, a great sense of responsibility and reverence that, and, and pride too. There's a lot of pride, like, well, that ended up here, you know, and that Bill Whitliff and his wife, Sally, had that presence of mind to start it, you know, to, to think, hey, Texas music, you know, some people may think Texas music is just shit kicking music, but it needs to be preserved or that there's not a lot of arts in Texas and that's not true, you know, and so they started the collections and what it's become today is it really is impressive and it is a great sense of pride and excitement and inspiration too, too, you know. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it with this, I guess, because you mentioned inspiration. How does it inspire you? I mean, the way that you're describing this just sounds fascinating, right? Like meeting people and going through this stuff and, and one thing leads to another and it ties into your, your love of music. How does, how does this job inspire you? Well, it inspires me to, to be an ad, you know, I find myself being an, an advocate for musicians, you know, like it's sort of the role I felt as a journalist, you know, because sometimes, you know, covering a genre that might not be that well known or an artist that's not so well known, you know, I, do, I wouldn't only write about famous people, you know, you're writing about up and coming artists. So I get inspired by trying to get it right to to live to fight another day you know it's a continual thing and also to be patient because you know i i am kind of an intermediary sometimes between these sort of inanimate objects or the or the remnants of someone's life you know their legacy whether that could be a phonographic record you know 78 a poster or or a correspondence and the living artist you know you know a lot of times some of these musicians, you know, they're not ready to be on a museum wall or they don't, or if it's say in the case of Lydia Mendoza or Mexican American performers, you know, they're, that kind of artist is not typically in a museum. I, that, that may sound incredible, but not really, not really often mentioned in the same breath as someone like Willie Nelson or even Lightning Hopkins, you know, it's just one of those things. So you, you know that it's sort of a, a continual sort of education me sometimes you know when i've i've actually had this conversation with like legendary artists and they're kind of like well do i belong there i mean is my stuff worthy of that <laughs> yeah yes you know like you know it's kind of you know it's, so it gives you a little insight that sometimes you know we need to water that little plant you know and, and right. watch it grow and be patient like maybe those materials will come here maybe they won't you know i when i was doing the research for the jerry jeff walker exhibition, which was the first exhibit I staged, was called the Viva Jerry Jeff. In doing the research, I had come across that he had made, a, he was, he literally was a hitchhiking performer, you know, uh, his, his real name is Ronald Crosby. He left, you know, New York as a teenager, AWOL from the National Guard, <laughs> changed his name, hitchhiked, you know, and, and but I'd learned that he made these recordings in 1964 in uh, New Orleans found those people that had made the recordings, they still had the tapes. So we were able to digitize and you could hear what Jerry Jeff Walker sounded like, you know, back in the days when he was aping Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan, it was really really incredible, you know, and writing about, you know, poverty and 
hunger and uh, civil rights. I mean, things that you don't associate with Jerry Jeff Walker. One of the things that intrigued me too in that research was that there were additional verses that aren't in Mr. Bojangles. And I was on a quest to try to find them and actually found them only to learn that they'd been washed away in a flood in Nashville. In oh, other words, wow. I was on this path because Jerry said, oh, I gave it to this guy. Couldn't find that guy. Found the person there in Nashville. And then that great flood that was happened about 10 or 11 years ago, where so many musicians lost like instruments and stuff. The original lyrics of Jerry Jeff Walker, <laughs> Mr. Bojangles, also washed away. So whatever that extra lyric was, and I, believe me, I went through so many, down so many rabbit holes trying to find that. What would, what would it have added to the conversation? I mean, nothing more than what any one of us scratches out when we make a mistake on something or backspace on an email. We go, no, that doesn't cut it. But it might have given us a little bit of something. It kind of teaches you sometimes leave the gem alone. You know, that's another lesson. You, know, don't, you don't have to over-polish it. It's already great. Well, Hector, thank you so much for joining us for this interview and, and for information on the Whitlift collections, including ours and what's available at the seventh floor of Alcac Library here at Texas State. You can visit the collections at their website, the whitliftcollections.txstate.edu. Hector Saldana, thank you so much. And thank you very much. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Big Ideas. We'll be back with another episode of Big Ideas next month. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, and keep learning. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz.